We will be jumping this morning into the gospel according to John chapter 9. We started here last week. In chapter 9, we, we make a habit of, of preaching through books. We've been doing that now ever since we first came here 27 years ago, and it served us very well, and we intend on doing that uh, henceforth. So uh, we're working our way slowly through the gospel according to John, and we're in chapter 9 now. Uh, and I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's all related, even though we studied the first 12 verses last week. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. He then anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it is, uh, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, And how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought up the Pharisees, to the Pharisees, the man who had firmly been blind. This is where we're picking up this morning. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We, do, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. Uh, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be cast out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been, born, uh, blind, had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 
And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why this is amazing why this is an amazing thing you do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes we know that god does not listen to sinners but if anyone is a worshipper of god and does his will god listens to him never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from god he couldn't do nothing they answered him you were born in utter sin And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, "Uh, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And then he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world this world that those who do not see uh, may see and those who see may become blind some of the pharisees heard him uh, near him heard these things and said to him are we also blind jesus said to them if you were blind you would have no guilt but now that you say we see your guilt remains a pretty long uh, bit of dialogue going on there and as we said last week and even the week before that that we could spend I don't know how much time uh, you know working through this this is one of these dialogues of Jesus that is just full of of theological gems uh, and that sort of thing but we're trying to do justice to it and uh, and and all of that but it's always, it's always difficult to do that. It really is. You know, as, as you're doing preaching sermons and not even teaching, you, sometimes you have to decide what you're going to cover and what you're not going to cover, and it's very hard to do that. Uh, but hopefully we'll be able to do this particular passage, uh, passage justice. Well, Jesus has miraculously healed this man from blindness that he was born with, and uh, as we considered last week, many people might have thought that Jesus was just walking down the road and you just happened to come upon this guy, but, but we understand that there was a divine appointment that, was, that took place, that Jesus was there in that particular place at that particular time because it had been established according to his divine itinerary all the way back at the very beginning of time that he was there for a lot of reasons but one of the principal reasons was to have this encounter and to heal this man from his blindness we also said this that even though we uh, we ourselves I don't think anyone here uh, was born blind uh, you know, there's not really anyone here that I know of that we may be losing our eyesight to some degree, some of us, and that sort of thing, but there's no one here in our midst this morning that is physically blind. But at the same time, we understand that, that very often these outward signs are reflections of, uh, of inward realities that we all are aware of. And one of the things that we talked a lot about last week is the fact that we're all born into spiritual blindness because of the sin that's in us and the sin that we're born into. And we understand that that if we see God and we worship God with our heart, 
uh, in the reality of the gospel. It's only because God has seen fit to breathe spiritual life into us. In other words, to make us who are spiritually blind to see again. It has a lot to do with our understanding of how we present Jesus to the other people in the world. We know this. There's no one in this room that can convince someone that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior unless the Holy Spirit opens up the heart of that person first of all. We understand that. That sin has captured man's heart and man is imprisoned to sin. And that God himself must release us from that prison before we will ever even give any consideration to the reality of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. One of the crazy things about this particular situation is uh, these conversations and encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Pharisees, but let me just say this, that there really is no biblical basis whatsoever for a group of men called Pharisees. It is not found in the Bible anywhere. That this was a, a particular group that began to appear and evolve hundreds of years before the appearance of Christ into the world. And by the time Christ came, they had a stranglehold on Judaism. Very legalistic in their approach of everything. They had come up with an idea about what is sin and what is not sin and, uh, and that sort of thing. And their expectation was for people to follow their teaching explicitly and completely. In other words, they were the ones who knew everything. And even though there is no biblical basis for their office, it had evolved to the point that they had a great control over the affairs of the Jews in Palestine at that time. Worship had transferred from the temple because the temple had been torn down. So where were the Jewish people worshiping? They were worshiping in synagogues. And the Pharisees were very prominent, very active in synagogue worship. They had a lot of power. They had a lot of authority in the eyes of the people. And you can understand why, you know, it would be intimidating for the average Jewish person to believe that these people actually had the power to put you outside of the synagogue if you did something they didn't approve of or said something they didn't approve of, that sort of thing. They had a stranglehold on the Jewish people, but they have absolutely no biblical basis for it. They bring this man before them to give an account to what has taken place, and he just says the same thing over again that he's already said before. One of the things uh, that has appeared here is the fact that this, is a, this healing actually took place on the Sabbath again. And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, that was an act of work. And you couldn't do any work on the 
Sabbath day, and therefore it was a sin to do something like this. This is not the first time that Jesus has healed someone on the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, all of the healings that we've talked about so far in the book of Gospel of John have taken place on the Sabbath day, which should tell us something. Maybe Jesus is trying to really, really drive on a point here. And that is that you completely understand the purpose of the Sabbath day. But at this point, we see there's, to some degree, even a division among the Pharisees because there's a couple of things here that just don't add up. This man was born blind. But now he sees. So what are we going to do with that? They ask the man, who do you say that he is? Obviously, there are conversations amongst the Pharisees in regard to that very question itself. And some were just amazed that he was able to do these things, and they really had no answer to it. Others were jumping to the conclusion that he certainly could not be someone that's of God because he did this thing on the Sabbath day and thereby was doing work. So they asked this man, who do you say that he is? And knowing what he knows, the only conclusion he can come to is that he must be a prophet. Remember back in the book of Deuteronomy when the Lord told Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. Very special office in the Old Testament, the office of prophets. He also gave them the means to identify those who would appear as false prophets. And that was this, that when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, it is a word the Lord has not spoken. We also know from the Old Testament there were certain prophets who were actually given the ability to perform miraculous healings by God too. It wasn't just that they spoke on God's behalf, they also participated in healing people miraculously. Elijah and Elisha were both examples of that. So we look at this and we would say, well, that seems to be somewhat of a logical conclusion. That based upon what he knows, it certainly sounds like Jesus would fit into that group called the prophets. Well, that's a little bit more than the Pharisees are willing to, <laughs> to grant. The reality is this, is, is these people who believed that they were very religious and they had a very great heart for God and for his word and for his people, they were driven by their own sin. They were blind to their own sin and they were driven by it.
there's a sense in which it could be said this, this is certainly true, and that is that even though they had convinced themselves that they are working with God on God's behalf, that in reality, based upon what Jesus reveals, that they were actually working against the God that they claimed to serve. Now that's an amazing I love the PCA. We have some PCA visitors here this morning. We just want to welcome you guys. They're here. They just moved here. And uh, we love our PCA denomination. We love uh, the actions that Presbytery has recently taken in regard to the social issues of the day. We fully agree with those findings. And one of the things we're going to be doing in Presbytery on Tuesday is we're going to be voting again as to whether the denomination is going to accept those things moved uh, through uh, General Assembly or not. The silly thing about this and the crazy thing about it, and the reason I bring it up is this, is, you know, there's a lot of diversity in our PCA denomination. In other words, there's a lot, of, we have a lot in common with the other PCA people, but at the same time, there's some level of diversity that we have. In other words, the way that we take things and we apply them is not necessarily always exactly the same way because the, the BCO, for instance, doesn't cover everything that we do as a church. Uh, and we are a, a denomination that is all about the understanding and the application of God's grace. We are reformed. We know that God has saved us. We have not saved ourselves. He has taken the blinders off of our sin-darkened eyes to enable us to see. He's led us out of spiritual blindness, out of spiritual darkness into the light. But even every now and then, you will come across people in this PCA who seem to see the sins of other people very clearly and at the same time to be more or less blind to their own. I'll just give you an example. I've used this before. It's been some time since I have. But when I first came into Presbytery and then I got involved on the examining committee, uh, there was an older man that was on the committee. He was, uh, he was Scottish, I think, which, you know, being a Scottish minister really is kind of a step up for, for most guys, it seems to be. You know, people love that accent. You know, I had, I had classes in semin seminary with Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson, and let me tell you, I could have just sat there for two hours and listened to the guy pray. But this guy was a Scot. He was a pastor of one of the smaller churches in our presbytery, and he was on the examining committee. And I'll be honest with you, from the very beginning, there was something about him I just didn't care for. He was one of those people that was a know-it-all. You know, he had to answer for every question and, you know, and that sort of thing. And, I'll, and, and reality is this, is some things we can answer definitively and some things we cannot. But he seemed to have a definite answer to absolutely every question that anybody came up with, and, you know, I would imagine, and we, I never had a conversation with anyone else on the committee about this particular man, but I would imagine that everyone had concluded he was basically a know-it-all. You know, he knew everything about everything, very strongly opinionated, and he was always, always seemed to be 
to feel compelled to share his opinion with everybody about anything and everything, whether people wanted to hear it or not, that sort of thing. But we got an urgent call from Presbytery. They were calling a, a, a meeting for the purpose of, of investigating and, uh, and trying a teaching elder for unconfessed sin. And so we had our meeting, and, uh, and just let me tell you that, and you've heard me say this before, that 90% of the time when we have these meetings, it's always very heart-wrenching to be a, participate in these things and, uh, and, and all of that. But most of the time it has to do with sexual sin. And this was sexual sin, but it was sexual sin of a different sort than we normally have to deal with. It turns out that this man had a history of beating his wife. And he did it on a regular basis through their whole marriage. And somehow she had managed to keep it a secret from the churches that he had been in before, but this time that didn't happen. Someone found out about it, and so he was called to the, to the carpet to answer for his actions at Presbytery. And the most amazing thing I've ever seen, or one of the most amazing things I've ever seen was this. Was his whole attitude was, I don't understand why you guys are making such a big deal out of this. Everybody does this sort of thing. And we were just floored. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine. Uh, but anyway, there was, just, there was no repentance on this guy. So what we did was we, we, we suspended him from office for a year. And after that year, there was still no repentance. And so he was defrocked. His ordination was taken away from him in our denomination. But I just bring this up as an example of how so easy it is for us to be condemning other people of their sins and at the same time be able to justify our own. There's a sense in which you could say that this man was a Pharisee who went by the name of Christian. We have to be careful not to be that way. Reality is this, is these Pharisees who thought they saw everything clearly were a very clear example of the blind leading the blind. And what is it they were most blind of? They were most blind of the reality of themselves. Blind to the reality of their own sinful nature and their, their fallenness. Their desperate and absolute need for a savior need for Jesus and what are they doing they're condemning Jesus to his face basically calling him a liar in essence they were spiritually blind and, and I just want to remind us that what is being reflected in all of this going on with this particular man who was physically blind we can all relate to it because we understand that that according to scripture that without Christ that we are all spiritually blind and that he must heal us from that spiritual blindness before we will see him for who he is and worship him as he is. In other words, we all have within us 
and certainly to varying degrees, this same disposition that the Pharisees had. And Christ alone can break us free from it. It's the very nature of a sinner to be blind to his or her own sin. And only the Holy Spirit can give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear who we really are and how we really are. These people were very fearful of being expelled from the synagogue. The parents, can you imagine parents actually doing something like this to their own child? Let me just read you what R.C. Sproul wrote on this. He said, put yourself in the place of a parent who brings such a child who's born blind into the world and imagine helping that child grope through the darkness year after year then imagine that one afternoon after that child has grown to adulthood the grown man walks into your house and says father mother I can see He says, you and I would want to, we would uh, crawl over glass to thank the one who made this possible, but not these parents. They professed ignorance and left their son out on his own. That's a measure of just what a stranglehold first century Pharisaism had on the Jewish people. They were willing to leave him out to dry all by himself, his beloved parents. Most amazing thing. The truth of it is this. Sproul writes on. Even so, we are like this man and woman. God works in our lives and gives us blessings and we cannot, possibly, uh, we cannot possibly describe that when the heat is turned on, we are quick to dissociate ourselves from him. In other words, you and I are probably far more like them than we would ever think for a moment. Because reality, every time that we sin, whether it's knowingly or unknowingly, we deny, in essence, our association with Jesus Christ. In other words, this is a regular thing that we're all guilty of. Not the unusual thing. Because we know that we continue to be sinners. And sometimes we sin knowing it. Sometimes we sin not knowing it. And I just challenge us with this, more, this, this idea this morning that you and I can have assurance of salvation for one reason and one reason only. And that is because it depends upon him, not upon me. 
If it depended upon me, there would be no real assurance of salvation. Because we understand that God is the one who has saved us. He's done everything necessary to make it a re- not only possible, but a reality. That is where we can have assurance of salvation. And without that understanding, you cannot possibly really have it. And if you believe that you can, then you just don't know yourself very well. Let me just read to you some Old Testament passages that have to do with blindness. One of the interesting things is this, is if you look in the Old Testament, you're not going to find a single example of anybody that was born blind to be healed from that blindness. It doesn't happen. Matter of fact, there's no account of anyone with blindness at all being healed miraculously in the Old Testament. Not one. So we need to understand that something that was going on here was brand new. This is not something that was even known to the people of God before. Now, all of a sudden, you have this guy coming along named Jesus who's actually healing people from blindness. But that doesn't mean that the Old Testament doesn't speak about blindness. It does. Psalm 146, verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 35, verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Isaiah 29, 18, on that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3 and 6 through 7, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. Healing, promised. Not physical healing, but spiritual healing. Jesus is that one. He is the uh, one and only one. One of the things that the, uh, the blind guy who was now seeing learned in this is he learned a hard lesson, and I would imagine all of us to some degree have learned this at some point or another, and that is that there really is a cost of discipleship. I mean, ultimately, he was cast out of the synagogue, which was a bad thing for a Jewish person because from that point on, he would be considered being an outcast by the community. Probably people wouldn't sell things to him. His neighbors would have nothing to do with him. His family would have nothing to do with him, etc., etc., etc. He was all by himself in a sea of Jewish people. And I want to challenge us this morning with the idea that there's always a cost to discipleship. Jesus pays the cost of our salvation, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost us anything. 
In other words, by casting this, this man out of the synagogue, he would be ostracized by the Jewish society and in their eyes become goyim. Now, in other words, a non-Jew, a Gentile. As we alluded to early on before, that there really is no biblical basis for this whole sect of the Pharisees. It's not biblical. What they were doing is not something that's taught in Scripture anywhere. It was during the days of the Maccabees, during that intertestamental period, that the, the roots of it began in the 3rd century B.C., And what initially its purpose was, was to oppose Jewish conformity to Greek and Roman cultures. To sustain and maintain the Jewish culture. But by the first century A.D., it had a stranglehold on Jewish religion, politics, culture, and society. Again, no biblical basis for the existence of such a group at all, period. But I just say this so we'll understand that this really cost this man a lot. Remember we said that salvation is a free gift, but in the end it will cost you everything. You've heard me say that a few times recently. It means having a life that is not consumed with ourself, but devoted to Christ. It means a lot of things. It means not reading the Bible because you have to, but reading the Bible because you want to. Living a life that is devoted to Jesus and all that we do and all that we say. Having an ongoing appetite for God's word, having regular personal and personal corporate prayer and worship. It means spiritual growth, never complacency. The scriptures always encourage us to go higher, to dig deeper, not to be satisfied where we are ever. Some of you have come a long way, but let us just be reminded this morning that everyone in this room still has a very long way to go. I would imagine that for some of you, Becoming a believer cost you some things that were precious to you. When I became a believer, it cost me friendships. People that I had known and been close to for a long time. Not about you. Every now and then I recommend books, and there's another one that I want to recommend to you this morning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship written by a German 
Lutheran pastor who was persecuted and eventually executed by the Hitler regime. He was one of the last people to die in World War II. Hanged. Just simply because he was preaching and teaching Jesus. He writes these things. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the, tre the treasure given in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price. It is the kingly rule of Christ. The gospel which must be somewhat are sought again and again. In other words, it's not something you just confess one time and that's the end of it. You seek it over and over and over again. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. It is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Discipleship. Ongoing discipleship. Becoming not, not stagnated in Christ, but moving ever forward in Christ, growing in Christ, living in Christ, maturing in Christ, loving Christ, giving ourselves more and more fully and completely to Christ. You've heard me mention this just lately. There's some things that just boil my oil, and one of them is... When people push what we call easy believism, that you can just sit down without really giving a whole lot of time and thought to it and this, that, and the other, and utter some prayer, and you can have every confidence that you're going to be in heaven with Jesus for all of eternity, even when your life beyond that point doesn't reflect that association at all. In other words, when we truly come to faith in Jesus, our life is different. It changes. The things that we love change. The things that we do change. The things that we used to do, we don't do anymore. And certainly none of us perfectly. But what did your salvation cost you? Really? It cost you some things. I know it did. That some people would put a lot of value on. But we understand this. That the value of what we get, there's no comparison. So I just want to encourage all of us this morning to remember that we're still on the path to Christ. The path to heaven. 
We stay on the path we know because God has got his firm hand upon us and we know that if he didn't do that, then we would wander off and sometimes we do wander a bit. Let's be honest with each other. That we can have the confidence that he will always bring us back. He will always bring us home. As we said before, we can have full assurance of our salvation because he has saved us. We have not saved ourselves. Another thing I would cautious about is being Pharisaic Christians. Sometimes there are people who want to take Christianity and almost turn it into a works-based salvation. Now, good works are part of the picture. We're encouraged in our good works, right? But we need to understand that they're not gaining us anything, that Christ has gained us everything already. They're just simply the evidence that Christ, in fact, is here, that Christ, in fact, is at work and continues to work in us. I think the best thing that you and I could ever do for ourselves is just learn more and more to trust in him. To give up, give in, give up, give in, give up, give in. Trust in him, trust in him, trust in him. Not in ourselves, not in our own ability. To lean on him. All the more. With every breath that we take.